0: Well, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the psalm that was read out at the beginning of the service, that's Psalm 90. We're going to look through this passage today under the title, The Timelessness of God and the Transience of Man. This uh, is such an incredible passage. Uh, It very much puts us in our place as humans under the greatness of God. Humanity is guilty of usurping the authority of God and what an absurd action that is because in the words of this psalm, we are reminded just how small we are in comparison to God. He is the infinite creator and we are his finite creatures. He is timeless and we are time bound. Our lives are transient. They're fleeting, brief, momentary. But God eternally existed before creation. So he's before all things. And by that measure, God is certainly before each one of us. No one in this room is over a 100 years old. And yet this psalm describes 1,000 years as merely a single watch in the night to the eternal God. That should be very humbling for us. Now... This psalm was penned by Moses, the man whom God used to lead his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. An editorial uh, remark written at the last of Moses' books of the Pentateuch describes Moses like this. So Deuteronomy 34 verses 10 to 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Now that's a pretty glowing review. There was never a prophet like Moses, of course, until the Lord Jesus, whom Moses prophesied, came about. But even Moses, with all the blessings of being used by God, was ultimately prevented by God from going into the promised land after he sinned by striking the rock to release water for the people instead of simply speaking to the rock which God had commanded him. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 20. Moses, along with All those who escaped from Egypt that were over the age of 20 were struck down by God in the wilderness before they could set one foot in the promised land. The people's sin was in following the testimony of the 10 spies who came back fearful of entering the promised land rather than following the word of Joshua and Caleb. They failed to trust in God's power and provision and they paid the penalty for it. And you can read about that in Numbers 14. We don't know exactly when Moses wrote this psalm, but surely it would have been after that sentence was passed down on himself and upon the people. They had witnessed God's wrath against the Egyptians, uh, but now they were witnessing God's wrath against themselves for their own sin. Yet amid this tragedy, the Holy Spirit enabled Moses to pen this psalm. And what a revelation! to help God's people understand how to live in the light of God's timelessness and man's transience. The words are just as relevant for us today. For non-believers who may be here this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit works through the words of this psalm to enable you also to see your place before God pray that as we work through these verses today you will recognize the futility of trying to live your life in opposition to god whether that be through ignorance or through intention god is your creator and he is your judge however through jesus christ he may also be your redeemer and so please see the mercy of god that pours out in the final verses of this psalm and take hold of those truths For believers today, we who trust in God's promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the truths expressed in this psalm help us orientate our lives in the right direction. They give us the ability to live accordingly with a right view of God and a right view of ourselves under God. The words are of tremendous help to our growth in sanctification. But more specifically, we remember that today is Father's Day. And those men who are are not yet fathers, those who are fathers, those who are grandfathers, I pray that all of us would be challenged to think hard about the priorities of our lives and the impact of our choices in raising up the generations coming after us to live rightly before the Lord. So we're given a simple fact in this psalm. The truth of the timelessness of God and the transience of man. And the question is, what is the right response to this truth? And Moses gives a threefold response. Praise God's eternality. Perceive God's wrath. And petition God's mercy. So Moses begins by praising God's eternality. And we see this in verses 1 to 2. So let's read those to start with. Psalm 90 verses 1 to 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses praises God for who he is and for what he has done and what he is doing. And it's only because of who God is that he could do the things that Moses praises him for, that we can praise him for. You see, it's only because God is from everlasting to everlasting that he could be the dwelling place of his people in all generations. God is a secure refuge for all who call on his name because he has always, is always and will always be there. And this is an important point to recognize, especially given the position of this psalm in the Psalter as a whole. Now, those who finally composed the order of the Psalms deliberately placed this psalm after the previous psalm. It wasn't because they came numbered that way. So in Psalm 89, we find a serious tension uh, between the eternal faithfulness of God and the reality that at that point in history, where god had seemingly rejected the covenant with david in response to the sin of israel for instance if we look back to psalm 89 and verse 24 we read this god's words of promise concerning the davidic king my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted now that's a great promise But then jump down to verse 49, where the psalmist laments, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? So the writer of Psalm 89 was wrestling hard with the tension between God's promises and the reality of what he was witnessing. And then as we come into Psalm 90, we are given reassurance of God's faithfulness. He is the eternal refuge of his people. And so despite the circumstances we face, we can trust in his faithfulness. The tension we face is because God is eternal and we are not. To be eternal means that God is above time. He is timeless. He has no beginning. He has no end. And he experiences no succession of moments within his own being. God is not bound by time. And so while we may experience moments in time when it feels that God has abandoned his people, Moses is lifting our eyes to remember that God's faithfulness is part of his innate character, a character that remains the same eternally. Eternality (coughs) is what is described theologically as an incommunicable attribute of God. It's a characteristic of God that is entirely unique to him and him alone. Some of his his attributes, his qualities, uh, are things that we as humans can express to some degree, such as goodness or mercy or holiness. We can see those things to a degree. But other aspects of God's nature are not communicated to us they are incommunicable they are unique to god alone and god's eternality is one of those incommunicable attributes because we have no ability to grasp what it is to be outside of time we have never lived one moment outside of time and even in the new heavens and new earth where we will experience the full benefits of eternal life even there we will still live that out in successions of time time began when god first created creation in verse 2 moses draws us to think about the words that he wrote in genesis 1 verse 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth while god interacts with his creation in time god himself is not bound by time and so his faithfulness remains true eternally and so god is transcendent over his creation but he's also imminent within his creation god did not simply create the world and leave it to his own devices now while he is from everlasting to everlasting he's also the dwelling place of his people throughout all generations before we leave these verses we should Also note that Moses uses two words here for God. The first is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is translated as Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, Lord. Whenever we see this word, we are to think of God's sovereign authority over all things. He is Lord. He is the sovereign one. The second is the Hebrew word El, uh, translated as god and this speaks of his supreme power now later in pass in the passage in verse 13 moses uses a third word uh, which we may as well address here it's translated as lord capital l but with the o-r-d in small caps and this is the hebrew word yahweh it is the personal and covenantal name for god it speaks of his eternal unchanging and self-existent nature it's a name that is built upon the word translated i am the name moses was used was uh, to say to the israelites when they asked the name of the god who would save them so exodus 3 verse 14 god says to moses say this to the people of israel i am has sent me to you and then in verse 15 We read, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, I am is the verb to be. And when we think of Yahweh, he is the God who is. He just is he never had a beginning he just is now this attribute of god is uh, referred to by another theological term aseity now there's a word to try and drop into a conversation this week aseity a-s-e-i-t-y it's a latin word that means from oneself and it speaks of god's independence because all things everything stems from himself everything has a beginning except god the great theologian rc sprawl once quipped and i'm paraphrasing here he said i'm often asked if i can prove the existence of god and i say sure and i can do it with this pen and his point was that for something to exist it meant means that something else or someone else had to exist prior to it in order to bring it into existence And as Christians, we recognize that God is that someone prior. So when we put all this together, we learn that the one whom Moses focuses our attention on in these verses is the eternal, transcendent, sovereign authority and power through whom all things were brought into existence and is imminently involved in his creation, but the special dwelling place of all who trust in him now let me ask you how big is your god when you think of god is he as big as that moses he has done us an incredible service here by succinctly blowing away any impression we might have of boxing god in he's humbled us by elevating our view of god to the proper perspective So with Moses, let us praise God's eternality. But the humbling process does not end here. The first response to the timelessness of God and the transience of man is to praise God's eternality. The second response then is to perceive God's wrath. As Moses, he continues by perceiving God's wrath. And this is through verses 3 to 11. That God remains eternally faithful to his promises is a great comfort. But it's also a grave warning. Because if he's promised to punish evil, we can be assured that he will do just that. Moses speaks of God's wrath. This is God's righteous anger against sin. Against all that opposes his holiness. And God hates sin. God's wrath is what we could call a communicable attribute because in some small way believers can identify and express this trait. In Psalm 139 verses 21 to 22, King David declares, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And so not all human anger is inherently bad. It's right to hate sin wherever we see it. If we were apathetic to sin, we would never do anything about it, either in our own lives or in the lives of others. We would never seek to see justice done if we had no hatred of sin. Of course, our hatred of sin is not like God's, is it? Because often we fail to deal with that hatred in a holy way manner most times we fail to deal with that in a holy manner hence the clear warnings instructions and guidelines concerning anger in the bible but god's wrath is righteous it is always carried out justly god never sins within himself when he acts in wrath and we should praise god that he does act in wrath because if he didn't then none of the injustices committed against ourselves or against others would ever be dealt with It's truly an oxymoron to, to call for justice on the one hand, and then on the other hand, decry a wrathful God. God's wrath is the meeting out of his justice. But here's the warning for us. We must perceive God's wrath against sin if we're to live rightly in this world. And Moses raises four points here for us to remember. Number one, we must perceive God's wrath in the sovereignty of and death <coughs> we see that in verses three to four sovereignty of death human beings do not have the control sorry the power to control their birth and neither do they control their deaths now in the moral revolution of our era death is no longer seen as the choice of god yet we should be fully aware that god is the ultimate one who determines when a person leaves this world people are responsible and accountable to him for their choices, but he alone remains sovereign over death. Now, Moses takes us back again to Genesis, uh, this time to chapter 3, where he recorded the punishment God bestowed upon Adam for his disobedience. So Genesis 3 verse 19, God says to Adam, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man may think himself a great ruler and many a man has set himself up in direct opposition to God, but that is simply a fool's errand, an effort with no hope of success. Even if they reigned on earth up to a thousand years, something of which earlier generations almost achieved, nevertheless, there's no getting away from the fact that at some point, at a predetermined point, God will demand their lives from them. And to an eternal God, what is a thousand years? Now, when you understand the point Moses is making here, you immediately realize that it has no bearing whatsoever on determining the actual length of a day in Genesis 1, which is sometimes made from this verse. You see, in Psalm 90, Moses is not making some technical point. That means we should think of the days in Genesis 1 as being more than six 24-hour days, no that's not what he's doing nothing like that at all what moses is doing is emphasizing the folly of man who thinks he can outlive the eternal god and what a ridiculous notion that the finite creation thinks he can surpass the sovereignty of the infinite creator our haughtiness should melt into humility In Acts 17, Paul shows the greatness of God when he declared to the Athenians in verse 26. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And listen to the same truth expressed by King David, but this time from the correct position of thanksgiving. Psalm 139 verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them god is sovereign over death he has determined our beginning in this world and our end in this world and that reality should make each one of us think very hard about how we respond to him in the time between these two moments so that's number one number two We must perceive God's wrath in the sentence of death. We see that in verses 5 to 7. Moses draws specific attention to the fact that human death is a punishment for sin. It is a sentence. Even Christians can sometimes fall into the trap of referring to death as being natural, but there's nothing natural about it. It's true that up until the return of Christ every human will experience death uh, but that is not natural it is a result of God's judgment against sin Romans 6:23 for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord death is the result of sin it is the punishment God inflicted on humanity as a result ultimately of Adam's disobedience what did God tell Adam in the garden Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When God made Adam from the dust and then Eve from Adam's rib, these first two humans had the potential for eternal life. If they obeyed God's commandment, they would have eaten from the tree of life, but instead they chose to listen to Satan's deception and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the moment they ate death came upon them they immediately felt the physical ravages of death which would ultimately lead to their final death and return to the dust but they also immediately felt the spiritual ravages of death their natures became sinful and they were separated from the direct presence of god in the garden since all of humanity stems from adam and eve we're all born now with a sinful nature we are all born in adam and so we're all born with the sentence of death see like the kings who represented israel so adam stands as the the federal head of all mankind through his sin we sin and by our sinful nature we are under the righteous wrath of god Paul brings this truth out when he speaks of the good news for believers having been saved from spiritual death through faith in Christ. In Ephesians 2 verse 1 he declares in no uncertain terms and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now that's not ambiguous is it? That's there's nothing unclear about that but listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. For those who trust in Christ Jesus for salvation, submitting to him as Lord, the judgment for death is dealt with. There is now the reality of life, and the death of our bodies is not the sentence that it wants was still we should not lose sight of why death exists in the first place that's number two number three we must perceive god's wrath in the suffering of a death we see that in verses eight and nine <coughs> now for the believer in the lord jesus christ we have full assurance that the punishment for our sin has been dealt with on the cross Full assurance. And that the moment we close our eyes in this world, they will open to see Christ. And when Christ returns to this world, we'll experience the resurrection of our bodies as well. Our mortal bodies need to be transformed into immortal bodies, bodies fit for life and the new heavens and the new earth. And so, unless Christ returns, first believers will still die. But for the believer, death will lead to life. As Paul says to the Thessalonians, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, however, even for the believer, death brings suffering. And indeed, we feel the ravages of death throughout our entire lives. Paul says we we do not grieve as others but we still grieve. That was foretold in the words of God to Adam and Eve about the suffering we experience in this life. Women would experience pain in childbearing, men would experience pain in working the ground. No matter how hard he worked, the weeds would keep coming back. Passages like this destroy the false prosperity gospel that's just spread like a virus across the globe. For the Christian there is no promise of health and wealth in this life but if that's the case for believers it's even more so for non-believers in in our modern society we recognize that every effort has been made to sanitize death and we might think moses is using hyperbole here because not every day of our lives is filled with suffering While we're gathered here now, many people outside of this place are enjoying a lazy Sunday morning or enjoying time watching their children play sport. You wouldn't call that suffering. That's, That's enjoyment. That's a blessing. But the deeper reality is that every day of our lives, there is suffering. Every day. Every human being is in the process of dying. Every human being chooses not to think of it that way, but that's exactly what is happening. Now, we can certainly prolong our lives by the way we treat our bodies. Paul said to Timothy that physical training is of some benefit. But ultimately, we're going to lose that battle. So, people try and avoid the thought of death throughout their lives. And then when death arrives, people certainly try to avoid the stark reality of it there too. We dress it up. We refer to it as natural. We refer to it as a beautiful experience. But death is suffering. It's said that the first step to dealing with a problem is to recognize there is a problem. Death is our greatest problem. And Moses drives this home in the following point. So number four. We must perceive God's wrath in the seriousness of death. Verses 10 to 11 provide a, a summary of... Moses calls us to think hard about the nature of death and to recognize that death is divine punishment. He speaks of the limited time we have on this earth. He speaks with a sense of despair at the lack of people who truly reflect upon this reality, who truly consider that death is not simply a natural event but a divine punishment. Death is the most serious topic for human consideration. And it should cause people to stand before God in reverent fear. In awe at his sovereign authority to dispense his righteous judgment upon his unrighteous and disobedient creatures. It's not morbid to think about death. Wise heads consider this topic. Moses presents this to cause us to think. To think about something that affects each one of us. Who considers The power of God's anger and his wrath according to the fear of him, says Moses. May we be people who consider that today. So the second response to the timelessness of God and the transience of man is to perceive God's wrath. The third response then (coughs) is to petition God's mercy. Moses finishes by petitioning God's mercy. In verses 12 to 17. Now, we've seen that God is eternal and righteous in his wrath, but those attributes are not by themselves good news for sinful, disobedient creatures. Because a purely eternal and righteous creator would be well in his rights to condemn all his disobedient creatures. But while the true God is these things, he's also more. Than these things he's also merciful psalm 103 verse 8 the lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and it's in the knowledge of god's merciful character that moses extends his prayer now there's six things that moses prays that god would mercifully do and we simply don't have enough time to do all of these justice so let me just highlight them for you and i encourage you to meditate on them later and then i'll just draw your focus to a couple of things so verse 12 is a called a petition for teaching so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom verse 13 is a petition for pity return O lord how long have pity on your servants verse 14 is a petition for love satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days verse 15 is a petition for joy make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil verse 16 is a petition for revelation let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children verse 17 is a petition for favor. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. As you can see, there is much in these few verses, much there for for you to consider in your own time. But let me come back to the first merciful petition in verse 12. Moses asks, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And here is basically the crux of this entire passage. If God is eternal, if God is dispensing his righteous wrath, if we only have a short time on this earth, then our prayer to God should be that he might mercifully enable us to live our lives accordingly. Lord, teach us to number our Days, teach us to recognize the brevity of our existence and to use the time we have wisely and we might think of that in two spheres firstly with reference to salvation if we are under god's wrath then living wisely would include responding to the savior and jesus christ is the mercy of god incarnate david mathis the editor of desiring god the website uh, writes this the most prominent request made of jesus in the gospels is have mercy on me which is precisely what he did in his perfect life sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection extending god's mercy not just to israel but to all the nations by faith Paul writes about the great exchange that takes place when a sinner repents and trusts in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 verses 20 to 21 he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. (coughs) We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God when a sinner turns to christ his sins are credited to christ and christ's righteousness is credited to the sinner the justice and mercy of god find their fulfillment in jesus christ if you're here today and you've never humbled yourself before the lord jesus please know that the promise of scripture is that all who call on the lord will be saved And I plead with you, call upon the mercy of God that he might grant you the wisdom to turn to Christ for salvation. That's the first sphere of wisdom. The second sphere would be in the area of sanctification. The process of being immersively conformed to the image of Christ and learning to live a life that's pleasing to God. In Romans 12 verses 1 to 2, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As believers, we should know that God's will is for us to do the things that bring greatest glory and honour to him. For in doing so, we will find the greatest satisfaction for our own lives. One man who understood this most clearly was the 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards. Between the age of 19 and 20, Edwards laid down a mission statement for his life under the title, Resolutions. It was a collection of 70 short statements that he committed to reading and reflecting upon every week for every year of his entire life. And it was a comparatively short life, dying after a smallpox inoculation at the age of 54. Let me just read a couple of his resolutions that speak directly to our focus this morning. (coughs) Number four, resolved. Never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. He lived to the glory of God in all he did, or sought to. Number five, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which i should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life number 17 resolved that i will live so as i shall wish i had done when i come to die and number 52 he says i frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again resolved that i will live just so as i can think i shall wish i had done supposing i live to old age now these are stunning resolutions and even more stunning considering that they came from him at such a young age and he did live by those resolutions and god used him mightily And none of us will probably ever reach the prominence in the Christian world that Edwards did. But that's no sign of failure. God calls us to live our lives accordingly in the arena he has placed us. We're called to use the coins that he's given us, so to speak, whether that be five or two or one. It's a call for all of us. But you know what? It's particularly relevant on this day, on Father's Day. Just yesterday, I caught up with some friends in Melbourne and I was asked by one of their friends who had, had come with them what I was preaching on today. And When I told him, he agreed that it was extremely important, very important. He said that his own father had died at the age of 50. But uh, he had set up a very big legacy, his father, having ingrained into his boys from the time they were very young that the most important things in life were to love your wife, love your kids and do all that under god that man used the coins he was given that man made the most of the time that he had he brought his children up in the discipline and instruction of the lord fathers are you investing your time in this most precious responsibility the midlife crisis is a common reality in modern society but When we follow the decrees that our sovereign Lord has mercifully revealed to us, then we will find blessing that truly satisfies. Paul's words in Romans 12 reflect Moses' prayer. And you know what? So do the words of Solomon at the end of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. In Psalm 90, Moses lifts our eyes to see the timelessness of God and the transience of man. Only by God's mercy can we learn to live our lives accordingly in response to these truths. And so may that be the prayer of all of us today. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Amen.